Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this fine mid-April day where we, unlike Joe Biden, haven't yet received former President Barack Obama's endorsement, but would happily accept it if offered. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my home in Washington as we pass the one-month mark of our society-wide quarantine. And today, I am joined by David Katniss, a political correspondent at McClatchy, who this week got neck deep in the buzz and speculation of who Joe Biden might select to be his running mate. Dave, welcome as always. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful day inside my living room again. <laughs> the temperatures are strangely consistent day to day now. Weather has ceased being a thing here in D.C. And we are happy today to have back onto the show Francesca Chambers, a White House correspondent for McClatchy, who on this day has traded a seat in the White House press briefing room for a spot on this podcast. Francesca, welcome back. We are eager to hear your insights about the Trump administration and his reelection campaign. Thanks so much. I would say the big difference between being in my living room and at the White House is when you're doing stand-ups there, you got to watch out for mice and rats. And here, I just have to worry about two cats. (laughs) The the cats can be tricky, though. Just FYI. This is uh, true. The cats can be a little tricky. Okay. Uh, On today's episode, the Trump re-election campaign finally has its opponent. What's the strategy going to be against Joe Biden? How will they criticize him? And how much has their operation been disrupted by the pandemic? I'm guessing a lot, but we're going to dive into that in a little bit. But first, let's talk Veep Stakes, Long Washington's favorite parlor game. The speculation about who Joe Biden might select as his running mate intensified this week after endorsements from Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, and Elizabeth Warren signaled the end of the primary and the beginning of the general election. Look, there's always a lot of speculation about potential Veep picks, but this year it's going to be kicked up a notch. Biden is pushing 80, and what's more, many Democrats feel he needs to select someone who reflects the party's younger, more diverse constituency. So, Dave, maybe it's not a surprise that some of the contenders are aggressively publicly auditioning for the role. You wrote about it this week. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So this always happens in every vice presidential nominating push. The people that want to be vice president may not say that they want to be vice president, but they do things to prepare themselves for the moment if they are chosen. There's a couple differences this year, though. First being that this is an earlier process than will have been compared to to the past couple of cycles. I mean, we had the past couple cycles go a lot longer into June and those vice presidential processes were pushed back uh, and were done over a more condensed time frame. So this time, Biden's got more time. I mean, it's April, this thing is wrapped up and, and he can move forward on it. The other obviously complicating factor is what's complicating all of our lives, coronavirus, right? This would be the point in time where he would do start to do joint rallies with these potential contenders. He would do meetings with them. He'd be at them with fundraisers. You'd get to test chemistry and personal rapport. You can't do that. Joe Biden is holed up like all of us at home in front of a laptop doing, you know, Zoom meetings virtually like the rest of the world. So there are those two complicating factors. So the public portion of this process becomes immediately more important. And most political watchers know the names that are going to be chosen because Biden has said he is going to choose a woman. So 
you've got the list out there of about six to ten names that are floating around. He, he did do us a favor there. He cut down, you know, in, in theory, in half the number of people we have yeah. to speculate about. So he did us reporters a favor, and I do appreciate that. Absolutely. Six to ten is a much more manageable number than two dozen. And, you know, we know the main names that are out there. Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren. There are very prominent names, and there are some less prominent names for sure that are that are out there as well. Catherine Cortez Masto out of Nevada would be one. Val Demings, a congresswoman from the Orlando area, would be another. But some are obviously going about this in a much more public way, in a much more strategic way than others. And my story sort of gets into a little bit of that, how Kamala Harris has been doing a ton of TV. Amy Klobuchar has been embracing voting rights as an issue and the vote by mail issue, her legislation to make it universal nationwide vote by mail. She's, you know, putting that in in the headlines. Gretchen Whitmer has obviously been foisted into the headlines, given her back and forth with the president over her response to the coronavirus. She's doing a ton of media tours. And then you've got Stacey Abrams, who's basically saying, I really want this job and not beating around the bush about it. So everyone's employing a bit of a different strategy, but it's a full court press. And look, you know, Biden's watching this. Biden is watching to see who is loyal, who's defending him, who is good on television. Those are the skills that you want in your running mate. And you want someone who's going to be able to take the fight to Trump. I mean, Dave, what do you, what do you think is the main sort of divide here uh, when it comes to who to select? As, as vice president. I mean, at, at this point, it feels like we have a split. My impression, and I'm, and I'm curious what you make of this, the, the split is between Biden selecting kind of a Midwest senator or governor like Amy Klobuchar or Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan, which is rooted, it seems like, at least partially in geography and what is going to be a very important area for the Electoral College versus picking a running mate of color who can really energize a lot of the party's base. I mean, is that your impression that that's kind of the big split? Yeah, right I think I think you hit it. I think it's it's demographic versus geographic. No, the nice demographic Dave. play nice. a person of color who I think he's going to have to pay. Well, I shouldn't say have to, but if I had to put my money, I think his pick is going to be a woman of color, which obviously elevates Kamala Harris, potentially Stacey Abrams. Catherine Cortez Masto would be an interesting, more intriguing pick as a Latina from Nevada. If you're going on geography, sort of the Midwest battleground states that the Democrats have to put back into their column, then you look at Amy Klobuchar. Then you look at Gretchen Whitmer. Then, you know, you've, you've got other possibilities even beyond that if you want to look into the Midwest and, and go deeper. But yeah, I do, I do think that is the frame. It's demography versus versus geography, I would just argue that the reason why I think Senator Harris has a bit of a leg up is that she almost checks both of those boxes. You have some people say, well, she's from California. She doesn't put any state in play. She doesn't put any important battleground states. Well, she's an African-American woman. Like, she's going to be able to campaign in Detroit and Milwaukee and Philadelphia and is going to be a source of pride for African-American voters who came out big for Obama, but did, had a drop-off when Hillary Clinton was on the ballot. And I think if you're Joe Biden, that is an important calculation in all this. Of course, above and beyond 
you want someone who can do the job and who's going to be competent given that Biden is, what is he, 76, 77, 77, I believe. Mm-hmm. The age is going to be a factor here, which I think comes into play. You know, Kamala Harris is two decades, more than two decades younger than Biden, which I think also plays to her advantage. Right. You know, Francesca, I think part of the, the complicating factor here, as you look at the, the names that Dave just listed at the top of, you know, the seemingly the top of Joe Biden's vice presidential list. Gretchen Whitmer has been in the news, not just for leading her state's efforts to combat the pandemic, um, but has gotten in a, a back and forth with, with President Trump about her handling of it and some of her criticism of his handling of it and vice versa. How, how do you think that that complicates Biden's selection here? And, and do you think that this maybe is, is something that, that that's been her own audition to be picked as his running mate? Well, it certainly elevates her profile to be in that kind of a fight with President Trump. But at the same time, if you're potentially thinking about picking someone who you want to be able to introduce to America, as your running mate, then she has already created a scenario where the first introduction for many Americans to her has been fights with Donald Trump. And so there is a potential downside to that. It's not focused on her policies per se and the kind of leader that she would be in the in the White House if she were vice president. So you at the same time, I think Dave made a really good point about the way that people are auditioning. You have Amy Klobuchar, who today released a plan for rural America to come back after the coronavirus. And one of her top points mentions Georgia and it mentions people of color and how that they have been affected. And so it's very clear that she is trying to get back in this, this fight. She thinks that having a plan for coronavirus will be helpful, but who does it seem like she's taking it to when she includes that in her, in her coronavirus plan? It looks like she thinks that Stacey Abrams will be a major competitor and that she also wants to be able to show that she too could be able to speak to to people of color and the problems that they face, which of course is another point. Stacey Abrams, as Dave mentioned, I interviewed her right before the coronavirus became a pandemic in which she openly talked about not just wanting to be vice president, but how she wants to be president of the United States at some point in the future. So she is not shy about talking about how she wants the job and what she thinks that she could bring to the table. And that would include turning out more people of color across America in the election. Francesca, I mean, how Stacey Abrams has talked about this is a lot different, as you mentioned, than the most potential vice presidential picks. Usually people defer and demur and say, oh, you know, look, I'm not really thinking about that. I am focused on X, Y, and Z instead. And whoever Biden picks, I'm sure that'll be great. That's not been Stacey Abrams' response to this. And depending on the eye of the beholder, it is either refreshingly honest or awkwardly unsubtle, her campaigning for this. But she would be, she would represent a, a pretty bold choice to pick someone who, yes, was a very high-profile gubernatorial nominee, but has never been risen to public office higher than state minority leader in Georgia. Georgia this time, though, is seen by Democrats as a state that could be a battleground state. It is a top target for them. So they certainly believe that she would put it into play. You were talking about Kamala Harris and what she could achieve in California. So if you're looking for someone who might be able to put a state in place, Stacey Abrams brings that to the table. I will note that she repeatedly insisted that she's just focused on turning out voters and voter protection this cycle, and that if someone picks her as VP, that would be great. But again, at the same time, you can't say she wasn't playing the game. She refused to endorse anybody. 
in the election. And you've got to wonder if that's because, you know, if you, you pick somebody for an endorsement, then automatically if that person doesn't become the Democratic nominee, then you've put yourself in a position where you might not be on their shortlist anymore. Right, right. Dave, one of the things that I think your reporting on the Veep Stakes has consistently pointed to is the potential backlash that Biden could face if he doesn't pick a woman of color. Do you think that the Biden campaign understands that, that they appreciate that? Do you think that that could give it an edge to someone like Kamala Harris? Look, the Biden campaign you know, if I'm just being truthful, as being so tight-lipped about this, as I tried to browbeat a lot out of them this week, I was largely unsuccessful about, you know, uh, this is just a highly sensitive process. And, and you guys know how this is. People want to talk off the record for this. They want to talk off, off the record. I mean, it's like another, it's like another degree of confidentiality <laughs> that goes on. But, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of just an obvious point. I, I think you, you've got groups out there that, that, that are sort of hinting at this. I mean, you, you first had groups say it has to be a woman. Biden said, sure, we're going to make it a woman. And now you've got some activists saying like, look, black women delivered this nomination for you. You know, African-Americans have been a core of the Democratic Party. We've been neglected. We're tired of just being taken for granted. And if you look at the margins of where Hillary Clinton lost, I mean, yes, part of it was Trump overperforming in rural areas. In, in a lot of these battleground states, but she had African-American drop-off. And, and what solves that problem? Some people are gonna say, well, Biden has African-American support. He doesn't have to check that box. I don't think so, man. Like, I don't think he can take that chance in this election with these stakes. And that's why I just think the pressure is going to be there. And I'm just trying to imagine the day if he were to pick a white woman who is qualified, and Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, there'll be a lot of part of the country that, that, is, that is happy with it, that gets behind it. But I think there will be substantial grumbling saying this ticket looks too white for the core of the Democratic Party and what the Democratic Party is really representing in 2020. And my question to Joe Biden is, does he want to risk that backlash? And I am betting he does not. For what it's worth, I agree with you, Dave. Francesca, Dave, any sense of what the timeline for this looks like? Because I think, look, obviously the, the DNC was pushed back from July to August, the way things stand now because of the pandemic. My hunch is we're going to see Joe pick a, a running mate a lot sooner than August, though, right? It feels like it's pretty fast moving, and Dave would be able to speak to that more than I would, but it does feel very fast moving right now. I think there are some upsides and downsides to picking someone quicker, right? In this particular environment, it's it's very hard for Joe Biden and, and a running mate even to get the kind of national attention amid coronavirus and the recovery that I think he would want for that kind of a, a endorsement. Like, you, of course, you'll get the initial bounce and initial interest, but sustained, it's not the same, as Dave said, as having someone out there on the campaign trail every single day. And so there, there would be a potential benefit to waiting until you could do that again. At the same time, I just wanted to chime in about the the very tough conversation we're having right now in America about, about right whether or not it has to be a person of color or not and say that when I've been talking to voters, you're talking about off the record, off the record, Dave, like they do not want to go on the record on this because it is such an awkward conversation to have. You don't want to be caught saying, I don't think it has to be a person of color. No one wants to say that, but people also don't want to argue that that should be the reason someone is specifically picked for the job. Absolutely. And to be clear, you know, someone like Kamala Harris is selected 
the, the, the reasoning will be she was a former attorney general. She was a senator. She at least had a moment to demonstrate her talent on the campaign trail. I just want to say quickly. No, go ahead, Dave. It, it, it's not like Kamala would just be a, a, some type of pick to fill a slot because she's an African-American woman. I mean, she is she is a senator from the largest state. She just ran for president. She was an attorney general. The one thing, thing I think that Stacey Abrams has uh, as a disadvantage is, you know, she doesn't have any foreign policy experience. She didn't win that governor's race, although, you know, Democrats claim she did. I mean, so qualifications do matter in this calculation. It's not just about picking a black woman, but if you have a qualified black woman that is ready to go, why wouldn't you? I guess is the is the way to inverse right. that question. Right. Francesca, you touched on it a, a little bit already, and I want to shift our discussion to this topic of the Trump administration, the his reelection campaign, and how they are starting to to gear up for Joe Biden. Let's start here because look, the 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 outbreak of coronavirus has upended every element of politics. Campaigns across the board aren't able to fundraise. They're obviously not able to go out on the campaign trail the way that we usually expect them to. A lot of the people competing in primaries have had those primaries delayed. So look, everything has been up. My question for you is at a, at a sort of basic fundamental level, how much has this thrown the Trump campaign for a loop? How, how much even logistically has it, has it been a, a challenge for them? So there are some challenges for them, which would include that they are not able to have the president out at rallies. And even though he's got the bully pulpit and he is at the White House having press conferences every single day, that isn't the same as the rallies, because with the rallies, they put out those tickets and you have to RSVP and they're collecting information about you when you do that. And then they use that information later on to be able to figure out if you're someone who's voted before, what your political party is. Do you even live in that state where the rally was held. They're not getting that kind of information right now, even though they have millions of people watching this daily programming that they've been putting on that has to this point been hosted by senior Trump campaign officials. The president hasn't been on it yet, but I've been told that that's something they'd like to do. Then you also have the downside for the president, even though he's doing these press conferences every single day, that is not a message that he can control. The rallies, he can control what he's saying, what's happening. He can't control what the Q&A with reporters as much as he tries. And so that's going to be a challenge for them, too. He's getting pressed on his record pretty aggressively by reporters in the room. So one thing they say that they've been quite successful at, though, since everyone has had to self-quarantine is the number of calls that they're making because people are at home. And so they're able to make calls from home and people are at home. So they're able to receive calls from home. So that number, they say, has increased quite significantly. Francesca, we, we have seen this and we've talked a little bit about it on, on the show that essentially Trump's reelection campaign has shifted from the trail to the White House press briefing room. I feel like really in the last week, we have seen now a critical mass, however, of, of criticism for, for how he has conducted those press briefings, uh, the combative tone, maybe not showing the kind of empathy for the thousands of Americans who are dying or the healthcare workers on the front lines fighting this virus. I mean, how much do you think it has kind of burrowed into the, the, the brain of the Trump brass or the Trump brain trust that this isn't going well? Or do they just reject that 
premise all altogether and and say that that is mostly a, a, a false narrative constructed by the media. Uh, the latter. <laughs> the latter. I mean, he's been pretty clear. He thinks he's done nothing wrong, that they're doing everything right. He couldn't have done anything better and that, you know, millions of people would have died if it hadn't been for the action that he took. I mean, that is their their message. And they see an opportunity for him to look very presidential right now in pushing that that message. And of course, Joe Biden has a very different message for the job that he thinks that Donald Trump has done. But they believe that they have a winning message. And it has also shifted from from that now to the economy. Now his message is, I built up the economy and the stock market before, and I can do it again. So you need to reelect me so that I can do all of that for you, America, again, which is quite the shift of, a, of, of the narrative because before it was keep America great. Now he's saying, let's make America great again again. <laughs> but there has been criticism from some Republicans that maybe just don't do it every day, right? I mean, that you can, you know, that less is more right. maybe in this situation. It doesn't sound like any of that criticism is, is maybe getting through or is appreciated or agreed upon within the White House. So Ari Fleischer, the former White House press secretary to George W. Bush, has been talking a lot about this, and he has been advising them to have Trump out there for less amount of time every day, taking questions that that he can he can do that, and then the task force can take questions. He is not a doctor, as uh, the, he has said repeatedly, and so he he maybe shouldn't be answering medical questions. Is what the criticism, as you noted, coming from Republicans is, and it did seem like it was getting through last week at a certain point when he limited the questions and then left. You could say maybe that's getting through this week too, but it was more that he was cold. We were all cold in the rose garden, and that's why he's cut it off. But it might have worked to his benefit. Dave, you know, my, my sense talking with some Democratic strategists in the last few days, I've noticed a little bit of a turn in, in their sentiment about how this is going politically for them. There was a lot of nervousness a month ago or so when you saw Trump's numbers rise. There's some concern that he was going to really use this to boost his own reelection chances and that there would just naturally be a kind of rally around the president effect that could potentially last until November. This week, it just feels different when I talk to Democrats, most of whom are, are now once again, very bullishly confident that the politics of this are not good for Trump, that the public is rendering a pretty harsh verdict on how he is handling this situation and that that is going to be what carries through to November. Is that your own impression or do you still sense some nervousness with Democrats you stalk with? I mean, Democrats are going to be nervous until they beat the guy, frankly. <laughs> They're going to be nervous after they beat the guy. They won't believe it if they do. But, but to your question... There is a point of diminishing of returns with these White House briefings that go on every night. I remember I used to watch them pretty religiously at the beginning of the coronavirus, particularly because I wanted information like most Americans and cared. Now we're into theatrics and him browbeating reporters and it's a, you know, it's a two hour show and I don't think it is helpful to him, but he's not going to stop. I mean, he can have all the advisors in the world say, well, Mr. President, you should go out there and only speak for 12 minutes and give your message. That's not how Trump is ever going to work. So he might do it for a day or two days, but he'll go back to the two hour thing because the thing he cares about most most of all is is media attention, even if it's negative. That's how he thrives. He loves, you know, browbeating reporters in the press, and that's his combat sport. What I do think is an interesting dynamic that I think politically will be intriguing to watch is how does this fight with governors proceed 
four months from now. I mean, you've had governors, Democratic governors of big states sort of play nice with him because they needed things from the federal government like Gavin Newsom and even Cuomo for a while. Right. When this gets more political and we're in an election setting and if we're in a, still in a tough spot as a country in August or September, like do Democratic governors get more political with him, making the case that he screwed this up from the beginning? Or are they trying to protect their states? Are they trying to get money for their states? And they're saying, look, we can't we can't piss the president off. And I think that dynamic between Democratic governors and the president is going to be something to watch because I do think some Democratic strategists believe that, hey, there's got to be more pushback on on Trump's proposals on whether it be the stimulus without accountability, whether it be, you know, him trying to rush the country back into being open. You know, congressional leaders aren't at the forefront of this anymore, right? Where is Nancy Pelosi? Where are Chuck Schumer? They're quarantined. And the people that are dominating the news are governors, Cuomo, Newsom, even Whitmer. So Whitmer is going to be a crucial part of this, even if she's not the vice presidential selection. As a Midwest governor from Michigan, if he's fighting with her over supplies and ventilators, and if this thing comes back in the fall, that is going to be a powerful dynamic. Democratic governors and how they decide to size up and take on President Trump in a political context without looking overly political if we're still in a pandemic. Interestingly, you saw during President Obama's endorsement, his video message, his endorsement of Joe Biden this week, he at one point set up an implicit contrast between the leadership we've seen from governors needing that to see that leadership in the White House as well. I thought maybe it was a little bit of a preview of a message that we could see from the Biden campaign and other Democrats as we move toward November. Francesca, real real quick, we have seen the Trump campaign start to criticize and characterize Joe Biden. Um, my own impression, just speaking of my own impression, is it's been a little scattershot. He is both they, they say, unable to win over the hard left, but then in the same moment, they'll say he embodies the hard left, that his policies are just as liberal and progressive as Bernie Sanders. They'll criticize him about China. They'll criticize his, his public performance, shall we say. To me, it's been a little all over the place, and they're trying to find what fits best. What's your own impression of where do you think their message and their criticism will head as they're able to start to focus more and more on the general election? No, I think that that's accurate. And they're trying to claim that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are the same side. Two sides of the same coin had been the way that they were pushing it before. And they were trying to claim that Joe Biden was essentially a socialist light. And then now they're trying to make this argument to get Bernie Sanders supporters from populism and saying, look, we actually have similar opinions on trade and all these other issues. So it is an interesting strategy to try to try and get some of those voters but at the same time attack Bernie Sanders as a socialist. And I don't know how that will work out for them. But it is true that in 2016, there were a number of voters who, who told me that they, they couldn't decide whether they were going to vote for Bernie Sanders or they were going to vote for Donald Trump. Because on some of those issues for workers, they did think that they had similar ideas. That's probably what is driving this strategy by the Trump campaign now. 
Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, my money long term is that they settle on a message of Joe Biden being a Washington insider, uh, a creature of the political status quo who is corrupt in the way that people believe all Washington, all longtime Washington politicians are, and that that's where eventually this goes, and that Trump is still the agent of change despite being an incumbent. Obviously, they have Trump in the White House at bigger concerns right now. I do think we're going to see that message sharpen in the coming months. We're going to do a little something different here at the end of the show. As we have mentioned, Francesca has been in the White House press briefing room, something that has really kind of captured the nation's attention over the last couple of weeks. And then, Francesca, we just wanted to ask you a little bit about, frankly, what it's like almost on a personal level to be in the briefing room. I mean, you have just the strangeness of having to sit three or four seats apart from everyone else and what is normally a very crowded space. I mean, it has to be a, a surreal and one-of-a-kind feeling for you as a reporter, I assume, so far. Mr. President, the Paycheck Protection Program has gotten off to a confusing start for small businesses so. because well, well, well. Wells Fargo has stopped taking applications. Bank of America Not anymore, they prioritized haven't. taking applications from clients that were already Bank borrowers. of America has so, been the leader taking tremendous numbers of applications. And, of course, there may have been they wanted to have a slightly different application. They wanted to have a little different information. Uh, But Bank of America has been a leader. They're number one in terms of applications. I wish you'd ask the question differently. Why don't you say it's gotten off to a tremendous start, but there were some little glitches, which, by the way, have been worked out. It would be so much nicer if you do that. But you're just incapable of asking a question in a positive way. Sometimes it's a real out-of-body experience, to be quite honest with you. When the back and forth, for instance, are taking place with the president, it is a little bit unreal to find yourself, especially, I hate to be like this person, but like to be like, you know, a girl from Kansas. And then you're like in the briefing room and you're in this back and forth with the president of the United States over life and death matters, literal life and death matters right now. And it's a huge honor, absolutely a huge honor. And it is very important to be able to hold the White House and the president and the task force to account. There are so many people who are writing in now, more than usual that I've had as a reporter, saying, can you ask about this that's happening in my community or happening in my state? Can you find out about that? And I think that that just shows how many people are still engaged. Sorry, Dave, some people still watching the briefings, um, but they are. I can't tell you how many people that I've heard say that they orient their day around watching the coronavirus task force briefing because they're looking for any news about how long it's going to be before the country reopens and what else is happening. So that's really fascinating to me as someone who used to sit in briefings five years ago and no one really cared at all. Have you been surprised at how frequently Trump is holding them? Of course, he's holding them every day. Not just that, but surprised at the length of each of these press conferences, because in some cases they last for two hours or longer. Yeah. Some days it it makes sense because there's a lot of news that's coming out and there's a lot of questions and I leave with additional questions. And then there are other days where it's going on, like you said, two, two and a half hours. And it's like, listen, we're going to be back in here tomorrow. So, you know, but no reporter, no reporter is ever going to say when he says, are you guys done? Do you want to do you want any more questions? No reporter is ever going to say, no, we're done. We don't have any more questions for you, Mr. President. Bye. That would never happen. 
right? Like you keep pushing, you, you, you push the president to stay as long as possible and make him be the one to call it. And obviously the White House Correspondents Association has taken some significant steps to try to keep everyone healthy, right? right. I mean, this is, this is an unusual situation. The, you know, the three of us, you know, when we would normally be working the office, we're not doing that, of course. We're doing this podcast from our respective homes. But you have to be in the briefing room to be able to ask the, the president questions, to be able to hold our leaders accountable. What kind of steps are, are you taking when you're in the White House to try to, to stay safe and, and, and not contract this virus? So, I mean, full disclosure, I'm on the White House Correspondents Association board. But just speaking for myself personally, it is hard because you do have to try and find a way to social distance in the room. And that certainly means that not every reporter who would normally get to be in the briefing room and have an assigned seat is going to be able to be in there on a daily basis. And even for us at McClatchy, that means we can't be at the White House every day like today. And so you really do have to also make sure that on the day when you're in there, you use it wisely. You know, what are your questions, have them ready to go. That's the other reason why you want the president to stay as long as possible. Because for me, I was in a briefing earlier this week and I will not have another chance to be there until Saturday. So it goes for some people further days in between than I think people may recognize in America. And that really affects the list of questions that you ask too. Cause that's another thing. People are saying, well, why don't you ask this? Or why don't you ask that? And it, sometimes it's that we would love to get to those issues. But when you know you have one shot that entire week to question the president and maybe he'll call on you once, Maybe he'll call on you three times to ask the questions that your readers need, that your colleagues are doing stories on and they need answers to. How do you choose? It can be tough. Oh, well, Francesca, you're doing a great job. And we uh, very much appreciate you still showing up to the White House and, and asking those tough questions. So thank you very much for that. And thank you to uh, you both, Dave and Francesca, for coming on the podcast today. Great job as always, guys. Thanks. Thanks. All right, and we want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.